Father in heaven, we thank you for this rainy, beautiful day. We thank you for this place and this time to come together as your saints to learn about you. We ask that you would guide the Sunday school teachers to teach the truth about you in ways that are easy to understand. We pray that everyone would learn more about you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, kids, if you want to go find a Sunday school, you can. Uh, we're going to pick up where I left off. It was a couple of weeks ago. It uh, hopefully isn't um, uh, too discombobulated uh, as a kind of several weeks break between our conversation uh, last week and this week. But just a real quick uh, reminder and summary, we were talking about Love and war, we were talking about Augustine as the father of the just war uh, theory in the Christian tradition, and uh, where we get that material from, I'm using for uh, my um, my resource is a book by John Mark Maddox called St. Augustine and the Theory of Just War. And I mentioned last week that Augustine's concept of just war is uh, sprinkled throughout many of his writings because the fathers weren't particularly systematic in how they approached things. They tended to be more organic. Uh, and so it is a systematized uh, theory that is imposed on that kind of organic understanding of it uh, by subsequent generations. So we talked about last time that the organizing principle for Augustine is always rightly ordered love. And that's what gives the consistency in his way of thinking that allows us to systematize his work and also to be true to um, what he was getting across. And we talked about how love directed, decent order is justice. And the connection between Augustine and uh, the... um, Greek tradition of seeking after justice, uh, and even the efforts we see in Augustine to kind of bring into harmony the Christian faith and uh, Platonic thinking, um, that I think is how Augustine could be summarized, is that Socrates' question of what is justice and how do you get after it is answered by Augustine as it's love-directed, decent order. Order, as in do all things decently and in order. Um, <clears throat> okay, so now trying to break to fast-forwarding to this week to kind of get started. I wanted to actually go through quickly the criteria that Augustine lays out for just war theory. Uh, and basically, this is broken into two headings. It's the justice of going to war, declaring war, actually... Uh, letting war kick off. And the second aspect is a justice in prosecuting a war. Uh, so that's the way they're typically broken out. And the criteria have, have been given to us as just cause. And again, these headings Augustine didn't come up with, but I'll share kind of Augustine's thoughts on each heading. For just cause in going to war... Augustine said, as a rule, just wars are defined as those which avenge injuries. If some nation or state against whom one is waging war has neglected to punish a wrong committed by its citizens, 
or to return something that was wrongfully taken. So that's his, uh, his idea for what a just cause for going to war would be. And Calvin follows uh, Augustine's reasoning. He talks about, you know, if it's okay for a king, for the government under that king, to punish uh, a citizen because he's stolen something from another citizen uh, in whatever rules they have in that kingdom, how much more is it okay for that king uh, to, to attempt to punish an entire nation who is trying to rob his nation or trying to kill his nation, right? And so that's how Augustine and Calvin get to uh, war is, can have a just cause. But then there's this idea of comparative justice that kind of recognizes the complexity of the international relationships as well as interpersonal relationships. Uh, it's rare that everybody has all justice on their side. It's also rare that you could go into uh, a war and come out uh, having, I shouldn't say rare, it's impossible that you would come out having uh, achieved perfect justice. So in the criteria of comparative justice, what is really being looked at is a more perfect justice being achieved as a result of the war. And that's critical because all of these criteria kind of, they interconnect, and uh, you shouldn't go to war if you can't, if you don't have a hope of getting to a better condition than you were in the first place, right? So that's the comparative justice piece. Uh, Augustine calls it a juster cause. And then right intention, uh, here, Augustine's intentions of the heart always matter. Uh, if you've read m- much of Augustine, uh, he always gets right back to, but what were you doing in your heart? Uh, which is really important, because we like to talk about Christian freedom, about what we can do with this or with that. Um, and Augustine is, is really good about going, but was it really Christian freedom, or are you really just doing what you want to do? And does... The New Testament says, you know, using your freedom as a, as a cover for, for wrongdoing. Uh, can, can good men, Augustine asks, can good men consistently desire to extend their dominion? So in the context of just war, he's saying, yeah, but you've, if you've got these people who are constantly, well, you know, we've got this just reason we're going to go to war. And as a result, their dominion is always increasing and their power is always increasing. There's reason to, sus- to suspect uh, the um, intentions of their heart. I think David, too, is a really good example of this. You know, he sends Uriah off uh, to die. How many times or how many men died uh, following David into perilous adventures or uh, being commanded to go into them? And David is innocent of their blood because there was a right intention in the military orders that he's giving until you get to Uriah. And uh, it's also, since, since this is a, kind of a uh, nerdy... Um, look at just war theory uh, from a Christian perspective, I just want to point out that it's interesting that David had to orchestrate a tactically flawed attack to get this guy killed. It's apparently, it's hard to get someone killed in war. Did you ever think about that? Apparently, uh, a well-conducted war might not result in as much death as one might think and I would actually, again, as an aside, say it would be an extended argument, but something for your consideration. The low casualty counts of U.S. conflicts uh, in the modern era uh, augur well for just conduct of war. And that's on both sides. Um, okay, competent authority. 
Augustine reserves the power to declare war to sovereign governments and holds that citizens, particularly members of the military, are obligated to answer calls to arms. He uses uh, a colorful example, kind of on a different topic, but it's not that different, um, where a pirate is brought before the Roman emperor or the Greek emperor, I can't remember in his anecdote, and uh, the emperor is chiding the pirate for all his crimes on the high seas, and the pirate's like, you're... You're guilty of all the same crimes that I commit, but it's called a crime because I'm a pirate, and you're called an emperor, and therefore it's not a crime. Well, Augustine, uh, Augustine believes in competent authority invested with, um, with the right to do certain things that private citizens can't take to themselves. And then another criteria or set of criteria is the last resort and public declaration for Augustine, he's almost silent on this aspect of it, but partly because he was living in Rome at a time when it was very much on the defensive. It was not declaring wars. And so since his, his thoughts on this typically came as questions from uh, interested people saying, hey, can I serve in the military? Hey, is it okay if I'm doing this or doing that? Um, nobody wrote him a letter and said, can I declare war? Because nobody was trying to. Instead, Augustine does reference Cicero's um, comments on the the right approach for a public declaration of war, and he, he endorses Cicero's approach, which is a, a very uh, thorough way of, of announcing beforehand, look, if you don't stop what you're doing, my nation is going to declare war on your nation, and then giving a period of time to, to, to elapse before that occurs. Peace as the ultimate objective, and this is, again, where that kind of ties back into that intentions, what you're trying to get at. Augustine says that war is waged in order that peace may be obtained. So those are the criteria, and I'm moving fast through that because I want to get to an application for us uh, in, in Scripture and in uh, Jesus and in our own lives. But in prosecuting war, so that was in declaring war, this is in prosecuting war, the two main criteria and the tradition varies on the number of criteria, but this covers the, the field pretty well. Proportionality, uh, which is closely connected to peace as the ultimate objective, uh, Augustine says, he whose aim is to kill is not careful how he wounds, but he whose aim it is to cure is cautious with his lancet. For one seeks to destroy what is sound, the other what is decaying. Uh, this is uh, obvious. This has obvious implications, right, for the Hippocratic Oath. So now, again, on a little rabbit trail, uh, because it's difficult not to with the church fathers, their comments could be used uh, for a different set of criteria on what they thought about a different discipline. And here, um, uh, Augustine's coming firmly behind the Hippocratic Oath, which is uh, useful for our culture that is losing track of what medical and healthcare uh, is meant for. Uh, not destroying what is sound, but destroying what is decaying. Um, I've heard C.S. Lewis's fanciful stories um, called the product of a sanctified imagination. And an observation I, I would have on Augustine is that his thinking um, is the essence of sanctified common sense. Uh, and I think that's useful for us today. If we read Augustine, you're going to be, be like, well, yeah. That's, that just makes so much sense, and we'd call it common sense, but it's sanctified common sense from Augustine. Discrimination is the final criteria, um, and, it, and it gets back to Augustine's 
uh, understanding of agency, which is, of course, very important in our own tradition, carried forward by Calvin and then most distinctly by Jonathan Edwards, at least in my, uh, my reading, uh, perhaps others, but picking up on the agency, and that gets back to the emperor versus the pirate, who's doing what, what is their uh, authority and span of responsibility. But what it gets to in this theory is the difference between combatants and non-combatants, and who can participate in war. It also gets to uh, who is guilty for, for those actions. If the private is finally ordered to go charge the hill, you kill somebody trying to do it, and you trace that all the way back up uh, to the king on how we got into this war and how this war is being prosecuted, uh, there are implications for the guilt or innocence of the private's action. And largely, the private's actions, um, many of the private's actions are covered by the authority of those who are telling him to go take the action. Even a private uh, can um, act inappropriately in war and can incur guilt uh, for what they've done. And Augustine would be the first to say that. If he's charging the hill, everything's just all the way down. He's charging the hill and he kills that guy. If he's taking pleasure, if he's like, I joined the military so I can kill people without getting in trouble, he is guilty of murder, Right? Um, so, so this theory uh, is just very good for application and for Augustine and thinking through how these things work. Even, I think, for, for ourselves, sometimes our churches, our denominations can get wrapped around the axle on a particular doctrine. And that right there is, I think, is often the outwork of failing to balance the various doctrines, and failing to rest in the authority of the church as they assist in that balancing act. Um, I see that, I I think that has implications in kind of the more independent, what has been traditionally called the independent or uh, Baptist views um, of of how doctrines are balanced. Um, Okay, moving on. Uh, Okay, so here's a little bit of uh, application. How does this apply to us and what we see in Scripture? Uh, Maddox observes that for Augustine, Jesus is the perfect uh, just warrior, basically. He balances forbearance and and determination, and he balances passivism and violent action. You've got passively uh, non-resistant in the crucifixion, non-violently resistant on, in his trial, when you'll remember we mentioned last time, he's slapped. This is the Jesus who said, when slapped, turn the other cheek. But he doesn't turn the other cheek, technically. He responds to this person who slapped him with a challenge. If something I said was wrong, you need to point it out. If, if what I said was correct, then you need to not slap me, Right? Um, so he's, in that instance, non-violently resistant, and then uh, a violent within appropriate limits when cleansing the temple. And here I think is, is something really important. It's Jesus' use of limited violence, uh, like his non-legalistic application of turning the other cheek uh, when he's slapped, uh, and 
similarly, Paul's examples of asserting his civil rights that firmly root Jesus' theology in earthly life. Augustine lived at a time when the church was starting to realize that Jesus might not come back for a while. And Christians couldn't just go live in a cave and think that that was achieving uh, great levels of holiness. We live in the last days. uh, We're forewarned it's going to be a time of wars and rumors of wars. And uh, we... We know that Jesus is advancing his government rule uh, through the wars of the governments that he's instituted on earth. So that's another way that this ties into the, the usefulness of, of considering what we have here. But in these last days, we're, we're called to exercise our discipleship, our commission, um, in, as, as we await the return of our Savior. We're called to do that uh, in, in an earthy way. Our theology's got roots in the, the life that we're in. We're in the world, but not of it. And one of the main ways that we see this worked out in Scripture, the, the rod, the sword, and the keys are all symbols of authority and of the exercise of discipline uh, that is the goal, uh, largely, of the New Testament ethic, is a is a self-control and a self-discipline in our forbearance and action, uh, even when it's hard. So, um, for going back to the organizing principle, rightly ordered love, God is the unmoved mover, his glory the object. He's chosen to save man so that salvation becomes a penultimate object a legitimate object of pursuit for us. So God is saving men by the imposition of his order that is Jesus, uh, or Jesus is reigning as king, and he's growing his kingdom. And the ordinary means of reigning today is partly through the earthly government he's instituted to promote peace and order. Uh, Similarly, in his church, he's commanded that all things be done decently and in order. So that's where, that's how I'm stepping through that to get to this love-directed, decent order is justice. That the fear of the Lord, as uh, we've, we've talked about looking at Proverbs in a, in a previous Sunday school, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but the end of wisdom is love. And that love looks a lot like justice, mercy, and humility. Okay, so with that, what questions or thoughts might you have on this? I've answered all your questions. Okay. Current events. Um, Israel, Iran proxies, U.S. withholding response. On the spot. <laughs> well, yes. If if I had.
just three more minutes. Um, no, 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 that's great. That's a great, <laughs> a great question. Um, so I did this actually in an article I wrote when the Russian-Ukrainian war uh, uh, broke out. Um, I couldn't, so, so what I'll try to describe is the process, right? Uh, that I that I would try to use to look at the different participants, um, but we of course won't come to any conclusions today because we probably don't have all the evidence we need to bring it to bring it out. But one of the first things I think you have to do is you have to separate each of those uh, players that you mentioned, uh, and you have to look at them individually. Because what ends up happening is you might grade the U.S. against the criteria and find that they, they pass or fail. And then you grade uh, Israel, and then you grade Hezbollah, and you grade Hamas, and you grade um, Iran, and you might fall, find that they all fail, right? Or that some of them fail and some of them pass. When, you, when I did this analysis of the Russian-Ukraine war, I tried to point out that I limited it for the purposes of the article to an analysis of Russia. It, ha- it says, n- the conclusions say nothing about the justice of Ukraine. You would have to do a separate analysis of that. Um, and, it, and, and that needs to be done to do a full analysis because you've, we've got that concept of comparative justice. So the first thing I would want to do is lay out those, those various entities and one of the first things I think you, that would, would likely come out is that a number of them are not competent authorities, right? And, so, and, and then the other part of this whole criteria is that it operates much like James says the law operates, that uh, if you have broken the law in one place, you've, you're guilty of the whole law. Uh, that's how this criteria is supposed to work. You actually have to pass each aspect of the criteria in order to get that endorsement of this is a just war, right? So for those that fail the competent authority test, they are failing the just war test, right? Uh, then, you, then you've got a couple of those players who would have an easier time passing the competent authority test, and you would have to, to start looking at, okay, is there a just cause for this, a right intention, um, public declaration of war. That's always a, a difficult one that we're struggling with, right, in the U.S. because there's so many political uh, implications for, to declaring war, internally and externally, right? And the same for Iran, right? If Iran and the U.S. declared war against each other um, in a very form... I know Iran leaders are frequently saying they're always at war with us, but, um, but in a very, like, formal way... Um, that would have international implications, right? It sucks lots of people in, like we saw with World Wars One and Two, um, which sets us up for a kind of a perverse behavior that you, that we see now since, where we've gotten very far away from this public declaration of war because we don't want just one world war after another, right? So that makes it difficult. Um, I think when you get to the analysis of what's happening in the wars, again. You, you, what I found, even when I did my analysis, was right away people started arguing with my um, 
my evidence, the sources of my evidence, right? And so you go, well, you know, this, this public journal, you know, newspaper has reported all of these atrocities, right? And they go, yeah, well, that newspaper is all part of the problem. I'm not sure I can believe what it says, right? And you get very quickly into an epistemological, it's easy for me to say, an epistemological argument about how do you know what you know? Do you know that those atrocities are, are coming out? So I think, too, what you see in this, I think you do see the U.S. government uh, trying, most of the time, trying really hard to make this argument uh, as for what it's doing, right? But you see that played out with, well, the intelligence community has given strong indications, right? But they won't show the evidence, right, to the level that everybody wants because they're protecting sources or what they can do and this kinds of stuff. So I think you do see this playing. This is very operative in U.S. Uh, the U.S. political landscape. Um, but they're usually coming at it from the side, and they are usually asking for um, your faith in the rightness of their actions, right? And that's, I see, I see smirks. I said, what? <laughs> um, but uh, I know I didn't fully answer your question. I think, I think, no, I, so I I think we do come from this perspective. Obviously, we're not a Christian nation, Uh, we're not, but this isn't a a strictly Christian theory either. Uh, This theory has been picked up and propagated by many governments and and, uh, even trans-governmental organizations. Um, They have different additions they've made. I've peeled this back to the Augustinian version, which is the majority of what um, analyses people look at. It is a liberal Western, however. Yes. Not So there's a, that is correct. There are also just war theories that belong to the traditions of Islam and traditions of Eastern um, uh, nations uh, that have developed along separate lines from this. And this is a look at the Western uh, version. Um, what was that? Yeah. Yes. But, but I think the, the key thing that I would get back to is I, I do think in what, what I've seen in my experience in the military that this holds a, a lot of sway. Um, not that it's lived up to all the time, uh, but, but this is why people are often asking questions. Well, wait a second. You know, why, why are you doing it this way or why are you doing it that way? Um, there is a lot of, of um, familiarity and knowledge with this, probably not as much as there should be. Mark Rogers, when he was in the military, uh, taught an intensive course on this for a period of time. Um, if I remember correctly, I think it was at the Marine version of uh, Command and Staff, General Command and Staff. Um, and he was a, um, 
he came at it from his, his lawyer discipline and with, an, with a fellow lawyer, and they taught this. I, this was taught to me at Air Command and Staff College. So this is a, an active subject. Yes? And to build on that as we close, um, that becomes a huge part of the conversations is that the, the darn boundary lines keep changing. And you're born into the world and you think this is just how it is and so, of course, nothing should change. It would be unjust to breach any of these lines. But as you study the history of the wars and how things came about, then it's like, wow, this is a tangled mess. Um, and I'm not sure, you know, what... Where the justice, you know, how you justly get back to whatever border it was. But I think that brings us to why we're looking forward to the kingdom of Jesus Christ coming in, right? It's the only thing that can cut the Gordian knot um, that we've tied up in all of these things, right? And we do seek, I think we can seek to act justly today in our lives, but but. People are always going to point back and be like, well, that's not how it used to be. Those aren't the, the, the borders of China from 300 B.C., right? So that's why you work to be just in what you're doing today, but we look forward with expectancy to Jesus uh, getting rid of these borders, right? And remember, it's God that's, it says that he put the people and the tribes and the times He's assigned them to, to give in times, and they come and go. And there's peoples that have been that he's wiped out and said, these people will be no more, and there'll be no memory of them. There's peoples that have been, and they continue. That's the miracle of the Jewish people, right? Uh, and then there are people who weren't, and now they are. But in all of that, Jesus' kingdom is, is cutting across not only languages and tribes and borders, it's also cutting across time. Uh, to the peoples who were and the peoples who are and the peoples who will be. So with that, let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you that you are bringing a kingdom, that Jesus is the ruling king right now, that he is expanding his dominion, that he is using the governments he's instituted to do that, that he's using the church that he put in place on earth to do that, and that he's doing it patiently, gently, and recreating in our hearts his own image. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.